I was, oh, I was going to do a thing. Is this thing on? <laughs> it's not as funny now. You ruined it. <laughs> <sighs> well, uh, we don't do a whole lot of ritual around here, uh, but one of the things that in our short life as a, as a new church, we've like incorporated into a, almost like a ritual-like experience here at the Grove is campfire stories. Uh, this is our second summer of doing uh worship here at the Grove Cottage Grove, or a year and a half into having weekly public worship, but this is actually our third year of doing campfire stories, because three years ago, um, I was still up in Woodbury at our Woodbury location, getting ready to launch things down here, helping plan worship up there, and we were doing um, online worship weekly during that time as well. So it was leading into summer when we were trying to think of fun, engaging um, sermon series, worship series to be able to do over the course of the summer. And we came around this idea of campfire stories. And the, the premise was this. What if we went back to these really old stories? At that point, we were doing these Old Testament stories. So stories from thousands and thousands of years ago and saying, what if instead of like making sure that we get all of the details right? And what if instead of... Uh, asking questions like, is this historically accurate? And if so, what evidence that we have? do we have of this? What if instead of all that, we retold them in such a way that it's like we're gathering around a campfire with somebody, telling it like a story that we would tell around a campfire with friends and family, and maybe even shaping it and tweaking it a bit to like meet the needs of the time and the place and the people that we were speaking to. Um, I, I don't know how that makes you feel. I know in the tradition that I grew up in, that would have been like borderline heresy. Uh, but the interesting thing is like, that's actually the way that we got our Bible. Uh, I actually mentioned to somebody this week, I, I'm pretty convinced like the majority, if not all of the stories that we have in our Bible are almost like campfire stories. Uh, the Bible, I, I've said this before, I say this quite often, I try to repeat it as much as possible. The Bible is not a, a map that if you just follow it, you'll get all the directions that you need in life. It is not an instruction manual that tells you every single thing that you need to do. Uh, it's not an encyclopedia that is going to tell you every single thing that you need to know. Instead, the Bible is this collection of stories, collection of books. It is a library of things that were written down over the course of hundreds of years by people who are trying to figure out what, what this whole following God thing was like. And so it shows us the, the wide array of what faith looks like in real life in all of its messiness. And what that means is that the, the people telling these stories, they weren't necessarily living in those events that they are categorizing. It's not like they were historians who were sitting there writing everything down as they were watching it, just, just like tracking the, the historical details as closely as possible. Instead, they were telling these stories, retelling these stories, shaping them in such a way that the people who were hearing them could understand them, but also so they would meet a need for the people that they were talking to, not necessarily being exactly accurate to the events that were, were happening. So, for instance, the Old Testament, the, sometimes it's called the Hebrew Bible, the first half of our Bible, which tells the history of the people and the nation of Israel. It, it's not a bunch of history that is written down like we would think of uh, as history books. These stories were written down hundreds of years after they happened in order to address a very specific problem 
the people of Israel found themselves dislocated from their land. They found themselves spread out. They found themselves asking all sorts of questions about, who on earth are we? Where did we come from? Who are we now? And like, where do we go from here? And so these stories that had been told around campfires for years and years and passed down from generation to generation start getting written down in order to help them create a sense of identity. All right, now that we've been through this, what does that mean for us now? And what does that mean for where we go from here? So that's the Old Testament. That's the first half of our Bible. And then this Jesus guy shows up. And this Jesus guy starts, starts talking in ways and starts saying things that, that challenge those stories as well or reinterpret those stories. They reinterpret uh, and, and challenge the way that, again, they understood themselves, God, and the world. And so they were faced with this, uh, this challenge, but also this opportunity to start re-understanding themselves and God and their world differently. And Jesus himself told stories in order to kind of catalyze that. Um, for 40 years after Jesus, there were exclusively campfire stories that were told about him. Nothing about Jesus, none of these stories were written down until 40 years after his death. So for 40 years, there was these circulating stories that we'd be told and retold around campfires, not written down and then read aloud. And again, that might feel crazy to you, but actually it was more crazy at the time to start writing things down because it meant that the stories got smaller. It meant that the stories got less expansive. It meant that the stories spoke very uh, less to the specific needs of specific people in specific communities. So as we go into our third iteration of this ritual that we call campfire stories where every summer we retell these these old stories previously we had only done stories from the old testament the first half of the bible well this summer the next four weeks we are going to be shifting into retelling stories from the new testament the back end of the bible and specifically stories that jesus told not just stories about jesus but stories that jesus told which are often called parables. Uh, we got some of the, the answers to what a parable is from our kids up here just a few minutes ago. A parable is just a, a name for a story that shares uh, like a deeper spiritual message, but it's told in such a way that people can more easily understand it and again speak to a very specific need in a very specific time to a very specific community. So today we are going to start with the story that Lily read for us just a few minutes ago, which is the parable of the two builders. Just to kind of set up the situation in which Jesus is telling this story, though. Uh, Jesus has been traveling around, teaching and preaching and healing. Lots and lots of people are hearing what he's done, and lots and lots of people are starting to rally around him. So he is just in the midst of giving one of his biggest and most famous sermons, and there are thousands of people there, and they've shown up for a number of reasons. Um, some of them hear that, that he's healing, and they want to be involved in that healing. Some of these people have heard like the great teachings that he has had. They want to hear some of those teachings. Some of them he are hearing whispers that maybe he's this long-awaited king of Israel, and they want to get close to that. Some people are, are even reaching out and trying to touch him like in order to get the power, grasp onto his power, literally to grasp onto his power. And it's in this moment, in, the, in this teaching, that Jesus is starting to say things like, uh, 
Blessed are the weak. Blessed are people who mourn. Woe to those who are powerful. Woe to those who have it all put together. Love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Again, these, these really popular, really, um, really well-known things. And Jesus is watching the thousands of people around him and watching uh, how they respond to him and watching what they do when he gets done teaching these things. And then he delivers this message. This is from Luke 6, verses 46 through 49. He's saying to the crowds that have heard him say all of these things, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on bedrock. When a flood came, the river burst against the house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the person who hears and does not put my words into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against that house, it collapsed immediately and was utterly destroyed. The, the nice thing about many of these parables, these stories that Jesus tells, is he often explains what they mean. Like immediately after telling it or in the midst of telling them, he says, this is what I mean by telling this story. The unfortunate thing is that does not always make like following what he says any easier. Uh, he, he says essentially here, I have told you thousands of people, I have told you a bunch of things. I'm, I'm curious what you're going to do with them. Because if you're not going to take them seriously, if you're not going to actually listen to what I have to say, you might as well not listen to them at all. You might as well not be here. If you're going to say Lord, which means uh, someone who like makes the decisions for your life, maybe you should allow the things that I say to actually decide how you live. Because if not, then like what, what on earth, what are we doing here? If you do these things, if you follow like the teachings that I have laid out, you're going to have a solid foundation when, not if, but when disaster strikes. And if you don't, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. It's your choice. Now, I imagine um, as the thousands of people were gathered around him hearing this story, and as we retell this story here today, that there are probably two different audiences that are hearing this story in, in different ways. On the one hand, there, are, there is the audience who is uh, really big on Jesus. They're really excited about Jesus and what Jesus offers them, but then doesn't know, or ugh, even worse, doesn't actually care what he has to say. Uh, those who are like really big on Jesus, but not so big on following what he was actually teaching. Do you know anybody like that? Can you picture somebody like that? Maybe you have been someone like that. At one point, I can certainly say that I have been a person like that. And, and it is to those people that Jesus would say, I, I'm not so... I'm not so concerned about what you, um, what you think about me. I'm, I'm more concerned about what you do with what I am telling you. As if what I'm telling you is actually going to benefit you and is going to make the, the world a better place to live as well. So like that's the first audience. But then there is this second audience. 
And maybe we are vacillating between both, or maybe we can um, be in both at the very same time. The second audience is one that says, you know what, the world is chaotic, and I'm trying to find some sort of grounding and foundation in it. Where on earth can I find that grounding and foundation? And to them, Jesus says, it's all right here. You have heard what I have to say. If you put these things into practice, when the disaster comes, and they will come, you are going to have a foundation to be able to survive it. And he says that it is like building on bedrock as opposed to sand. My teachings are like bedrock, foundation, not like sand that is going to be swept away. Now, I'm going to say a second thing that could easily be uh, taken as, I don't know about heretical, but um, might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I don't think Jesus knew much about architectural science. Is that fair? Uh, a Jewish teacher living 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, I'm guessing that Jesus did not have a deep understanding of architectural science. You can agree with that or disagree with that. I am making that inference here. Uh, my guess is even if he did, you're like, well, Jesus was God, right? So he must have understood all this stuff. Even if he did, he, he wouldn't have said that to, he wouldn't have said those deep understandings to the people that he was talking to because they wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about, right? So uh, one of the things that we've learned about in architectural science, I, I say we broadly because I don't understand architectural science either. Let me put that out there. Uh, but one of the things that people who know architectural science have learned is that, yeah, it's good to have a solid foundation that is going to hold up, right? Sometimes, however, the best foundation is not solid itself. Often, the best foundation actually has some give and take with it and can flex when those disasters come. Obviously, the best example of this is in Japan. Uh, Japan is well known for having, like, devastating earthquakes, right? It used to be the case that these earthquakes would come and they would have this huge destruction. Well, at some point, the, the authorities in Japan realized, you know, an earthquake is a natural thing. We can't control it. They come when we live in a place like this. What we can control is our human response to it, our political response to it that can limit the amount of damage. And so what they did is they looked at the architectural science and said, maybe it's not good to have a foundation that is completely rock solid. Maybe it's actually good to have buildings that have a little bit of flex in them, knowing that when disaster comes, they're going to be able to move and adjust. And yeah, some picture frames might fall off the wall. Some books might move around on the bookshelves, but it's not going to destroy everything. So now in Japan, it is required that these tall buildings, every few stories have to have um, the, these things that are almost like uh, on your car that, uh, that adjust as the building moves and sways. The foundations themselves, as they go down into the ground, they do not land on a solid thing. Each of the pillars that go down into the foundation actually sit on pieces of rubber that are anywhere from 12 to 20 inches deep so that when things get rocky, when the earth starts moving, the building can actually move along with it, knowing that when it happens, yeah, things might get messed up a little bit, but it can take it. 
when disaster comes, not everything's going to get destroyed. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have the same types of regulations here in the United States in places where uh, issues like that would come up. But there are other companies and other builders who take it into account when they built. So like um, the, the best example in the United States is the new Apple company headquarters in Silicon Valley. It is this giant circle. They call it the spaceship because it almost looks like a spaceship landing. Um, if you were able to get a crane which could pick up the, that could grab the building and pick it up, you would be able to completely remove it from the ground. There is no solid footing whatsoever on this giant building. It actually, the foundation is like the shape of a bathtub, and then it sits on these discs that are then in uh, almost like bowls, so that when, not if, when there is some sort of natural disaster, natural movement, the entire building can move up to four feet on its foundations. Absolutely wild. Again, again, though, on top of all of this architectural science that is being implemented already, there is this understanding within the sciences, within architecture, that says, yeah, this stuff is great, but we can get even better than this. There is no settling and saying, well, we have the definitive way to be able to create resilient buildings going forward. They're continuing to figure out better, more innovative ways to build this stuff into buildings so that when disaster strikes, when things get really hard, predictably, things can be more resilient and the hope is that actually some of this stuff can be built into the outside of buildings that you can actually see. And as you see it, it's like, oh, well, that, that's like a piece of artwork, not just a rubber base that is uh, hundreds of feet under the ground. Why on earth am I talking about architectural science for five minutes? Who has fallen asleep? Nobody's fallen asleep that I can see, but you, some of your eyes might be glazing over. Why should you care about architectural science? Because this is an uh, absolute gift to us when we think about life and faith. It's an absolute gift of an object lesson. Guess what, folks? Life is not perfect. There are disasters that are going to come. Um, some of them actually might be natural disasters. Some of them might be disasters that you feel in your life. They might be financial trouble or health trouble or relational trouble, trouble with your job, trouble with your family. When those things inevitably come, it is actually good to have flexibility within the system, right? This is even and especially the case with faith. You might be at the point where you don't know what you believe or what you think, you might not fully understand who you are or why you're here or what on earth you're supposed to do in the world. You might not know what you think about God, whether you believe in God at all, whether there is any meaning or order to the universe at all. And what architectural science teaches us is that that's okay. That the flexibility if we're willing to build it within our system, will allow our lives and our faith to actually be more resilient than something that, tr than something that tries to hold really firm and if it inevitably crumbles when the hard stuff comes in the way. Again, I don't know what, uh, what type of 
um, uncertainties you have in your life. I don't know what type of um, chaos or um, disaster you might be facing or you might inevitably face. But what I can tell you is that they will come. You might be going through it right now. And yet the thing to know, the thing of which I am entirely convinced is that, as Jesus says, the best and most resilient way to get through this, even and especially when things are going badly, the best way to make sure we survive through it together is to lean on not our beliefs, not our uh, not the things that, that we say, not on this grand religious language, not on power and privilege that might come from uh, trying to align ourselves with, with Jesus, not even on like a hope that someday we might live in heaven. The best way to uh, survive the disasters that come in life is to lean into the teachings of Jesus, to live out this stuff that he is talking about. You might not know what you believe about Jesus if you believe about anything. Sometimes I don't either. But what I know is that I have flexibility built in to be able to say, yeah, even when I don't know what I believe or what I'm certain of, I can trust that following this way of Jesus is going to build some, build some resiliency into the system. So as we go about our everyday lives, as we try to navigate the difficulties, the chaos, the disasters, the very real disasters of life, May we lean into things like caring for the lowly, like loving our neighbor, like extending grace and mercy, like holding on to our judgment. You might even say, may we continue to grow goodness. May that be so.